Pets aren't just like family, they are family. So when you need to find a sitter for your furry baby, go to care.com pets. It's easy and fast to find local, experienced, and background-checked pet caregivers. From dog walkers to cat sitters, there's long or short-term care options at Care. Whether you need pet sitting or boarding, you have options to choose from. Visit care.com pets and browse by availability, rating, see reviews, and more to find the ideal care for your pet care needs. You can even post a job for pet caregivers to apply to. And rest assured, all caregivers who you can interact with are required to complete a background check. You can even find other kinds of care, including child care, housekeepers, caregivers for seniors, and more. Find care for all you love at CARE. Go to care.com slash pets now and see why over 3 million households use this amazing platform. Find a caregiver your furry family will love at care.com slash pets. That's care.com slash pets. Well, hello, uh, uh, hello and welcome. Here comes another. <laughs> Let's include that false start. Definitely. Shall we? It's yeah. another Books of the Year show. So so soon after the last one. It is. Doesn't this feel weird? Time when we went for like, like, you know, three months without a, without a podcast. Yes. And now it's like a matter of days. I know. Uh, feast or famine. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's what it is. Can I say right at the very beginning that I've always been a supporter of Jose Mourinho oh. <laughs> since our since our last since our last podcast, yes. where I believe I referred to him as the Antichrist. <laughs> Sometimes some people might have been given the impression that you weren't a fan, but the truth could not be further away from that. That's right. I might have given the impression that I had some doubts about the appointment of Jose Mourinho. Nothing could be further from the truth, and no. I now realise that he's actually the saviour. And he, he is. And he is the special one. Three, two away at uh, West Ham. That'll do, won't it? Yes. Fingers crossed. And, you know, get through the Champions League. Who knows what happens? Who knows, Who what, knows will happen? what will happen? The guy wins trophies, you know. So Anyway, Jack Reacher. Uh, yes. That was a good show last yes, week. Yes, it was. Lee, Lee was Child. excellent. Excellent. And uh, there'll be a little bit of follow-on, I think, because, as you mentioned, there's... Uh, there's a, a reference to Malcolm Gladwell in, yes, in yes. the Lee Child book. Yes, Scott McElroy rhymes with not a bellboy. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not not, very not a bellboy. Yes, uh, quite possibly talking about the Lee Child stuff. Quite possibly the best collection of books written in modern times. Reacher is the anti-hero we all want to be. Anticipate the attack and counter it with devastating effect. Then have a good coffee to wash it down. Quite right. Simon Midgley says, "Can't wait until." Well, hang on, what does that rhyme? Ryan with Simon rhymes with Ridgely. Ridgely, as Ridgely. Andrew Ridgely. Andrew Ridgely, yeah. Uh, can't wait until Lee, or Jack as Simon calls know, him, yeah, just the once, once uh, comes back to interview Simon about his forthcoming new book in 2020. I'm guessing because it's only a matter of days, you still can't say anything about this book. Can you say, I mean, anything? No. Give us, like, it's espionage, yeah? No, I'm not going to... No? Uh, thriller. We can say thriller, thriller. surely. Thriller. Okay. Contemporary thriller. thriller. Good. That would be, yes, it's very not, good. It's not a follow-on from Mad Blood. It's, no. It's, it's standalone, a, yeah. It's a standalone, brand-new, thrilling, exciting... <laughs> As endorsed by Lee Child, yes. Coming out next year. Next year, great. Just Ju- in time for June, your probably. summer holes. Um, Bev Nicholson rhymes with... Uh, <laughs> Um, to books of the year at yahoo.com. Yes, you've to the probably, email. Yes, you've probably had thousands of emails about this, but can I add my voice to those saying that it would be brilliant if you could get Lee Child to interview Simon about his next book? Because it would. Maybe it could be a special. 
please and thank you lots, says Bev. Well, that would be great. My guess is it could well happen. If he's, co- if he's coming over... Yeah, 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 absolutely. He could be the guest host. Yes. And you yes. can sit there and I'll sit here. Yes. And here's our special And very probing out. questions from me. Tell me, why? I why this? Is, I don't buy this premise. <laughs> Lee will be able to say all kinds of things. Anyway, yes. yeah. well, let's, let's see what happens. OK, uh, Reg on Twitter said, The disur- Disturbed, Sound of Silence is one of the best cover songs evs. Matt needs to listen, to, listen it. to it. I yeah. haven't, but I am going to. So will I find that I on... I think you'll like it. And the yeah. video is pretty good as well. Oh, so it'll be on YouTube or something, yeah, or some absolutely. kind of streaming thing. Yeah. And, yeah, I think, it, I think... I mean, we can't play an extra here because it's not that kind of Because we have to pay. But yeah. I think it's amazing. And it's very... You can tell that the lead guy in Disturbed doesn't normally sing this mellow. And then by the end, he's on kind of metal thrash mode. Oh, is he? Yeah, he actually sings in three <laughs> different registers altogether. <laughs> so it's halfway through the song. No, can't deal with this anymore. Duncan Bang. Garner rhymes with um, farmer. Farmer? I've just no. seen Malcolm Gladwell. He's, just, he's is here. He? He's going to come in. I'm going to leave that until okay. later. OK. Because we might as well just... Shall we? Yes. Let's make space. Let's, Let's make, make space. space. As, as though it's a live programme. Yeah. OK, here we go. In you come, Malcolm. Malcolm. Simon and Matt. I'm Simon. How'd you do? I'm Matt. Hey, uh, you're sitting in the middle, uh, so I'm a bit cold in here. I just turn yeah. all the lights I have asked yeah. him to sort the air out, man. Okay. Nothing's more English yeah. than shivering <laughs> in some <laughs> corner. It is you almost Christmas. Yeah, you're Canadian. Come on. Pets aren't just like family. They are family. So when you need to find a sitter for your furry baby, go to care.com slash pets. It's easy and fast to find local, experienced, and background-checked pet caregivers. From dog walkers to cat sitters, there's long or short-term care options at Care. Whether you need pet sitting or boarding, you have options to choose from. Visit care.com pets and browse by availability, rating, see reviews, and more to find the ideal care for your pet care needs. You can even post a job for pet caregivers to apply to. And rest assured, all caregivers who you can interact with are required to complete a background check. You can even find other kinds of care, including child care, housekeepers, caregivers for seniors, and more. Find care for all you love at CARE. Go to care.com slash pets now and see why over 3 million households use this amazing platform. Find a caregiver your furry family will love at care.com slash pets. That's care.com slash pets. So uh, onwards with another one of our uh, books of the year. And it is undoubtedly a fantastic pleasure to welcome Malcolm Gladwell to the studio to talk about Talking to Strangers. Hello, Malcolm. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Uh, I'm Simon. He's Matt. And yes. Malcolm is in the middle between the two. Oh. <laughs> so that's the... How long were we building that, up for that gag? That, yes. That, that, is, that is the setup. <laughs> it can't be the first time I've heard that, as you know. <laughs> no, I, no, I realise that. The re- one of the reasons why I'm so uh, glad to have uh, worked out some time uh, to spend with you, because I, I genuinely think you're one of the, the great storytellers of this generation. Oh, thank you. Um, but not just in print, but also in audio. And... Uh, your your podcast, Revisionist History, is my favourite podcast. Oh, so really? This is, oh. this is the obsequious start of, this the, is, this uh, is. of the interview. Things can only go downhill from here. <laughs> so so um, can we describe the cover of the book? Because then well, I want to take it from... I, I, oh, I think I've got, I've got a promo oh, okay. copy. Now, I don't know whether... What does the actual copy look like? Because we've just got advanced copies well, here. The English one is um, is red, but I, you know, I don't... 
I know the American one much better. It's red Describe with some kind of thing on it. Okay, red with a thing <laughs> on it. Okay. Anyway, it's got Malcolm Gladwell on the front, and it says "Talking to Strangers." I just want to start then. Given that revisionist history is such a is such a big deal, and it's such a great way to tell stories, when when you have a germ of of an idea, particularly this idea, how do you work out whether it's going to be an article or a podcast or a book? Well. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, the dumb answer is that book ideas have to be long <laughs> and podcast ideas don't have to be long. The better answer is that some there are some stories... If a story has a strong emotional component or is um, on the lighter side, whimsical or mischievous, or um, then it's better... Audio, because audio is best at best. Audio can you know audio is best for humor, for emotion, for sentiment, for books are for much more sort of analytical in my mind topics. Um, and so it's really about the kind of subject I'm tackling. Yes, uh, I could have, for example, this will mean nothing to you if you haven't been listening to revisionist history, but I would have liked to have seen a book from Malcolm Gladwell about. How I'm going to become a Jesuit priest? Because <laughs> yeah. you are quite taken with the Jesuits. I do love the Jesuits. It is yeah. true. I spent uh, a lot of time with them. They, uh, I could have done many more things on yeah. the Jesuits. Anyway, but you haven't. So we're talking. To, uh, we're talking about talking to strangers. This was the germ of the idea. It's not an article. It's not a podcast. It's a book. Where did this uh, originate from, and how did that expand into a full story? Well, I'm obsessed with spy stories. And I read them all the time, real ones and fictional ones. And I was reading this very strange, not well-known story about a spy named Anna Montes, who worked, was a, rose to the highest levels of the American intelligence service, and the entire time was, uh, was spying on behalf of Fidel Castro, giving basically everything, and she had access to every, she gave everything to the Cubans. And... I was struck by the fact that all spy stories, real-life spy stories, are the same, in that they, are, they always involve someone who um, decides to go over and spy for the other side, and it takes forever to catch them. They're never caught. You never, there has never been, as far as I can tell, a real-life spy story where I, Malcolm Gladwell, take a job with MI6, I meet with my KGB handler, I agree to give them everything, and as I'm walking back to, you know headquarters, they nabbed me on the street. That has never happened, right? It, it, what always happens is I'm there for 10 years. I make, I, you know, I, I commit every sin imaginable, give boxes full of secrets to the other side, and then finally, through some extraordinary set of circumstances, I'm finally caught. And so I wondered, why is it so hard to catch spies? That's really where I began. Um, and then I... Then, then, then this Sandra Bland case happened, which is the case around which the book is organized, which was this um, heartbreaking encounter uh, in America between a young black woman and a police officer um, over a routine traffic stop that escalates into an argument. And then the police officer arrests this woman, Sandra Bland, puts her in jail, and she commits suicide there three days later. And the entire encounter is captured on videotape and if you watch the videotape as I did and have as have millions of people one is struck by I got a feeling of 
deja vu. I was like, well, wait a minute. This is the same thing I've been worrying about, thinking about with spies, which is the officer doesn't understand who she is. He meets a stranger and he can't, he's completely hopeless at understanding what her intentions are, what her motivations are, what her true personality is. He thinks she's dangerous. She's in fact coming from a job interview. She's a, she's the most wholesome. I mean, it's the whole thing is this kind of epic misunderstanding. And so are spy stories. You think that um, Kim Philby is a loyal member of the British establishment. You promote him over and over and over again. And the guy, the whole time, the guy's, the whole time, the guy's working for the Soviets. You completely miss everything you think you know about him is wrong. So that made me think that this, there was some, this was a really deep and rich theme to explore, which is why are strangers so baffling to us? Um, why aren't we better at getting to the heart of somebody who we don't know? So misunderstandings and misinterpretations were at, are at the heart of both of those encounters. Would you yes, say? yes, um, and um, and along alongside that, clearly strategies are being used that don't work, um, which is odd that we would, as human beings, continue to use interpersonal strategies that work that don't work, um, uh, and uh, and very little thought had been done had been done about how to fix those problems. That's the other curious thing. We keep failing with strangers, and yet we never, we never try and fix the issue. Or whatever fixes we come up with don't work either. So, I mean, why are we still... We have hundreds of years now of spies getting away with murder, and we're still not any better at catching them. In fact, it's getting worse. You could argue that Snowden is the single... got away with more than any spy in history. I mean, he downloaded, what was it? Two and a half million files. I mean, it's like the problem. The problem isn't getting. We're not getting better at stopping this kind of treason, and we're getting worse at it. It, it is interesting that we we are so bad at spotting when someone is lying to us, and mm. th th that's a subject I want to come to because um, Simon mentioned right at the start that you know. Uh, you accept, I'm also a massive fan of your podcast and um, there were sections of the book that I knew what was coming because I listened to the podcast. You talked about the Anna Montez case mm. and, and various episodes within within the book had already um, come up in, in the podcast. And I know as well that the audio book that you've done for this book is not just the standard sort of get someone or yourself in front of a microphone and read the mm. book out. It is, it is, a, it is a, a work in itself. Mm. But let's, I, I want us to go back to that idea of how how is it that we are so bad at spotting when someone's lying mm -hmm. and um th there's a theory that you you have or that you um cite in the book called the truth default theory mm -hmm. in other words that we have evolved to just assume that the person who is telling who's talking to us is telling us the truth and it struck me i wonder whether that's an evolutionary thing in other words we we have got to where we are quite a lot based on trust, based mm. on when the guy comes back to the cave and says, I found this, you know, part of the river where there's loads of fish in there. Trust me, get down there. There's, you'll have to get past a few burrs, mm. but, you know, get there and you'll be fine. To trust me, I can get over to the other side of the Atlantic and there are riches there, but you're going to have to pay me a huge amount of money to get in the boat. So we are where we are now because of trust. Exactly. Exactly. And is, is, is that... Also, the flip side of that is that means we trust perhaps a little too much. Well, that's exactly the argument, that evolution did not select us to be good at detecting lies. It did the opposite. We 
it selected those who were willing to to trust others implicitly. Because once you're willing to trust others implicitly, you are capable of doing virtually everything that um, distinguishes ourselves as human beings. You can form meaningful relationships. You can cooperate easily. You can communicate efficiently. You can start companies. You can, I mean, virtually everything of value. The reason the two of you, presumably harmoniously, do this podcast is that you you have an implicit trust, and you 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 know you you assume the other person is is diligent in what they do, isn't making <laughs> yeah. things up, is going to show up. I mean, on and on and on and on. You could not do this if you didn't have a kind of baseline level. I came here. Do I? I I trusted you when you said you're you were who you were, and that this is a real thing and not some hoax. I mean, on every level, as human beings, we do this all the time. So that's what. The kinds of people who doubted and were suspicious and paranoid about every single encounter they had, their genes didn't go anywhere, mostly because who would marry them? <laughs> but more, more importantly, they can't, they can't succeed in life, right? There's just real limits to how far you can go. So the, the, this is an enormously important and crucial part of human nature. It just so happens that the, the, there's a, there is a cost. It's a small cost but it's not a trivial one. The cost is we will be extremely uh, susceptible to those who deliberately set out to deceive us. Um, and that is a, as the, uh, as, the, as the software engineers say, that is a feature of human beings, not a bug. Um, it's something we have to learn to live with. So, so the spy story that you were talking about and more upset, more upsettingly the Sandra Bland story, they're at the extremity, but in a sense what you're saying is they indicate a good thing, and that is, although it's turned out incredibly badly, this, mm. we are where we are in these stories because we are naturally trusting. Although in the context of the book, those two stories are illustrating different ideas. So this spies absolutely that um, our willingness to trust others means that, by definition, spies are going to have an easy time of it, and there's very little we can do about that. My concern with policing strategies is that as a matter of, um, of, of, of deliberate policy, particularly in the United States, but in other jurisdictions as well, we have decided to try and train police officers out of truth default mode. We have given them every incentive to be suspicious and paranoid. And on the grounds that we want our police to be able to catch those, those deceivers, right? And I would argue that's a mistake, that in fact... We're better off with um, trusting relatively naive police officers because a world in which police officers are suspicious of everyone is a world in which uh, the very fabric of society begins to deteriorate. You, we would lose all, you begin to lose all respect for a police force if it treats innocent people as potential wrongdoers. And I would rather a few criminals go free than to routinely subject innocent people to the suspicious arm of the law. Um, I, I, I think as well that the book has interesting things to say about how we read strangers. And I am willing to bet every penny in my pocket against every penny in your pocket that every interview you've done, you've been asked 
about one particular part of this book. And so I'm going to ask about that particular subject, which is the Friends fallacy, which oh, is obviously yeah. the, the Friends TV show. Am I right? Am I, is my money safe in my pocket at the moment? Not everyone. Not everyone, many, really? Many, wow. Many, OK. Many, many. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is how, you know, when, when we're struggling to, to read people. Mm. On the Friends TV show, the point would be you could watch Friends with the sound turned down the whole time, you'd be able to tell what was going on yes. because the facial rec- the facial uh, movements are so exaggerated that you can tell straight away what's happening. Mm. Whereas, obviously, in real life, that's not how people are. Yeah. So we, we have an assumption, it's called the transparency assumption, that uh, human emotion is reliably and accurately represented on our faces. And... Um, one of the reasons we believe this as strongly as we do is that in television, on movies, and in books, that's the way emotions are presented. So act, trained actors do that. That's why when you turn the sound off on Friends, you can actually, I've done this on more than one occasion, it is unbelievable. You know exactly. You can follow the most convoluted plot on Friends <laughs> perfectly, without error, with the sound off, because when Ross looks angry, he gives you a perfect angry look. And when Monica is perplexed, she looks perplexed, right? And it's very easy, and I think we do this um, without thinking, to fall into the trap of believing that normal people do that. And in fact, we don't. And there's, there's a really, in the last 10 years, there's been a really kind of fascinating strain of psychological research devoted to kind of exposing this particular fallacy. So the question might be, for example, I talked about this one hilarious study in my book where they rig a group of German psychologists, create what they think of as the most surprising and shocking scenario they can find. They bring someone down a long, dark corridor, have them read some Kafka. Only, of course, Germans would have you read Kafka. (laughs) And then answer a bunch of questions. And then they say, "Okay, you can leave now. And then you leave thinking you're going to go back down the corridor. And in fact, while you've been working away, they've rearranged the room. It's now a big open room with red painted walls single light bulb in the middle, and under the light bulb, sitting on a chair, is your best friend, right? And you come out of the door, and they they videotape your face. And then you're asked, okay, were you surprised when you saw, came out the door and saw your best friend under a, you know, in a red, red-walled room under a naked uh, light bulb? And everyone says, oh, I mean, I was stunned. I mean, it was 9 out of 10 on a scale. And they say, what do you think your face looked like? And they say, oh, I think that my jaw dropped, my eyes went r- wide, And my eyebrows shot up. They think they gave the classic sign of surprise. In fact, if you examine the videotape, very few of them did. Most of us, even under the most shocking circumstance imaginable, don't look shocked, right? Now, think about the consequences of that for our ability to read strangers. It really becomes problematic. If I don't know you well enough to know the idiosyncrasies of your facial expressions, I'm in trouble if I try and make sense of you based on what's on your face. So, having researched and written this book, what questions should we be asking ourselves mm-hmm. when we meet when we meet strangers? Well, you know, can you distill what the things that we should be so to avoid the the, the, the bad stuff and still keep as much of the good stuff as possible? What yeah. should we be thinking? Well, we should. There's a famous example in um, American basketball of a player named Kawhi Leonard, one of the great basketball players in America, in the world. He was coming out of college, and he was being interviewed by a team that was thinking of signing him. 
And he came to the interview, he's 18 years old, wearing a suit, and throughout the interview, he sweated so profusely they could see the sweat signs under his suit, the, the rings of sweat. And the general manager, the manager said after the interview, I'm not going to draft him, put him on my team. I want someone who's cool under pressure. He clearly is not. It turns out, of course, that this guy, Kawhi Leonard, is the coolest under pressure of any player of his generation. So the general manager got him completely wrong. Why did he get him wrong? Because he didn't do what I think we should do when dealing with a stranger, which is when we observe a particular behavior, rather than jump to the most obvious stereotypical conclusion, which is, in this case, if you are sweating profusely, you're nervous, right, and not cool under pressure, we should entertain the full range of possibilities. He's... His suit doesn't fit. It's too hot in here. He's running a fever. He's nervous, but he's only nervous because he's in a suit talking to two middle-aged men. In fact, on the basketball court, he's never nervous. I mean, there's 10 reasons why he might be sweating. The problem is that person jumped at the first and most obvious one. So I think as as a kind of, there's many things we can do, but as a kind of human exercise when we meet strangers, it's really crucial to kind of, um, make as long a list as possible of potential reasons for why they are behaving the way they behave before we go any further with our in the interaction. So are you a better interactor? Are you a better judge of strangers now than you were three years ago? Um, I believe so. I have tried to discipline myself not... I, when I say better judge is an odd thing because what I've really tried to do is not judge. I've resigned my judgeship. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have decided. I have decided. I'm enjoying the two of you tremendously during this podcast. But I, in my new position as as resigned judge, I will leave here saying I know nothing about the two of them. Whereas the old one would have said, "What a couple of jerks they were." <laughs> no, no. The old one would have said, "They're both very nice and charming." The new Malcolm says, "I have no idea." <laughs> It's quite. Uh, well, you you do uh, reference this in the book when you say the right way to talk to strangers is with caution and humility. And, yes. and so you've already sort of, in a way, there you've referenced the caution. In in other words, you're not absolutely sure what's going on there, so don't try and read it. But also the humility of saying, actually, none of us are really good at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we should actually say more plainly, I am not good at this. Um, and because I am not good at this, I am not going to take the risk of jumping to a conclusion about another. And so, and the other element that we have in our lives that would further impair our ability to be able to read other people is alcohol. Now, mm. you, you have a uh, really interesting um, section in the book about alcohol, but it's the, the, the thing that I took from it and, and I've thought about a lot since, is the... Is, is that alcohol leads to this myopia as yeah. far as our ability to be able to work out what someone else wants from us? Yeah. Yeah, that chapter came from the fact that I wanted, because this is a book about talking to strangers, I thought that I should deal with the problem of of um, of sexual assaults, particularly on camp. I mean, uh, the, the, the particular phenomenon of young people often on college campuses um, who you know meet at parties and then there's some dispute afterwards about the nature of their of their um, sexual interaction, and when I went around to college campuses to talk to people who study this problem, what every single person told me was, "Oh, you must be writing about alcohol then." And I said, "Well, I didn't, wasn't think I didn't think I was going to write about alcohol." And I go, oh, "This is an alcohol." In every single case that this happens, 
one or both, typically both parties, are drunk. And unless you deal with the effect that alcohol has on our ability to make sense of a stranger, you, you can't understand this phenomenon. So I, so I decided to devote a chapter to exactly what does it mean. So all of us around this table right now are sober. Um, were we to have had, I don't know, four or five drinks and had the same conversation, how would it differ? And, and now we'll put this in a much more high-stakes context. Um, imagine two 19-year-olds um, uh, engaged in a, in a potentially romantic interaction, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and their you know, blood alcohol level is 0.2, and they are one of the, at least one of the parties thinks that the is desperately attracted to the other. If they're drunk, that drunk... Um, it has a profound effect of on their ability to make sense of the other, and the the term that these that alcohol researchers use is myopia, meaning alcohol is commonly understood to disinhibit us. In other words, to peel away all of our kind of surface presentation and leave our true self in vino veritas. Right? No, what alcohol creates is myopia. It shuts down our higher cognitive functionings so that all we can do is consider that which is right in front of us um, in that precise moment. We lose all sense of tomorrow and all sense of things in the background. And that makes us unbelievably bad at navigating the complexities of romantic interaction. You said previously this has been the most interesting book you've written. Mm-hmm. Why, why would that be? Because all of the topics that you pick are intriguing and have sold phenomenally well across the world. What makes this one the most interesting to write? I think just the range of topics, of of stories that I got became immersed in. I mean, spy stories, you know, stories about drunken teenagers, stories about pedophiles. There's a chapter about a torturer. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a little bit dark, true, but I don't know. There just was, and the topics. It's a very emotional book, which I think is why the audiobook um, is so. Uh, the other book is profoundly different from the print book. I mean, it's a very different experience because you hear, like I said, like you were saying, we use all the tape of all these people I was interviewing. So you hear them and you hear these, you know, I have in the chapter about the CIA torturer, I don't talk about him. You hear him in his words talking about what he did. It's very different. I mean, it's kind of, um, and that was fast. It just was fascinating to me. I mean, in, in a way that some of my other books. I mean, they've all been interesting, but this one was special. I should say we uh, we were talking about you on the last podcast when Lee Child was in. Oh, I love Lee okay. Child. So we were talking about the new Jack Reacher book, and there's a there's a moment in uh, yeah, it's in, in, so in Blue it's Moon, Blue Moon, yeah, yeah where um, Jack Reacher thinks back to a point where he'd been on um he'd been on a bus and there'd been a paperback book on the back seat and he picked it up and read it and it's blink he doesn't he doesn't say blink but basically he describes how this book is how you should trust your gut as yeah. opposed to overthinking it and anyone who's read blink knows all oh, right that's blink and we yeah. asked lee, lee about that when he came in yes yeah. yeah. so, I, I i mean I, i'm supposed to write by december 1st i have to write the introduction to killing floor I'm so in deep with Lee Child that I volunteered. That was the first one. Yes, they're doing a re-release of it. The death count in that is almost as high as the death count in the new one. (laughs) He—he's a. I wrote something for the New Yorker in which I pointed out he's—he's a serial killer. 
<laughs> Jack Reacher's a serial killer. He's actually killed more people than yeah. most serial killers. And in the new, and in the new one, <laughs> oh dear, he, yeah. you know, he's not punching people to death. He's just shooting them. And I said, "Why are you so? Why are you killing everybody?" He said, "Trump. That's the reason. That's the reason." I love those books so much. Why? I just think they are so fantastic. The kind of they well, they're they're interesting on so many levels, but. The one thing I enjoyed is that he's he tweaked the thriller convention in a number of very kind of fascinating ways. One way is that the these books are filled with action, but the point of the action is not the action. It is Reacher's description of the action. This is a whole new wrinkle. So it's not about Reacher punches someone. It's Reacher's calculation of how he's going to punch them in the moment before he punches them. That There's two pages of that, and it's <laughs> ripping. Yeah, And you don't even care about the punch when it happens. It's like a ballet. Isn't it's, it? like, yeah, is... it's like, it's just, I mean, I, that's a, among many things that are fantastic about it. Uh, if, you, if you didn't hear that particular podcast, that's available from where you, where you downloaded uh, this one. But he is genuinely uh, a fascinating, fascinating guy. So I like it when our guests yeah. cross-fertilize. Yes. If, if if I'm sure there's a better expression. Um, <laughs> You know that I could use. Oh, you know, I, oh, I have one last Jack Reacher story, Lee Child story. I don't know if anyone's done this before, but I sent in a blurb without being asked. I wrote one once for one of his books and just sent it to his publisher and just said, "I I know you didn't ask for it, but if you, if you could see it in your heart to let me blurb your book." <laughs> and what? Uh, I think it got on one of the books. It was it was very elaborate. I was very pleased with it. Anyway, it was, uh, that's how much of a fan I am. Uh, while we have you with us, uh, a couple of things I wanted to mention. What's what is it about golf? Well. You know, I the truth is, I'm mean, gonna. I did this as you know. This you're referring to a podcast I did, yes, where in I which you golf. in which you clearly despise golf yeah, and yeah. everything that goes with it. The, the truth is, I despise urban golf courses and the tax breaks they get. But if I'm going to be honest, I watch all of the majors from beginning from Thursday to Sunday, all four of them. I feel disillusioned. Now. <laughs> I, just, wow. uh, I was not expecting that at all. I do, and I have for years. I, I mean, so I, who's the one person who's not going to be watching this not. preposterous sport? <laughs> And I thought, well, I'm going to be with Malcolm on that one. And it turns out you're watching them. Uh, the other th- so another thing, while, while you're here, how English are you? I mean, I know that you were born in Fareham. Yeah. I know that you went to Canada. Yeah. I know that you're part Jamaican. I know that you live in America. Yeah. So when you come over here, is there yeah. any part of you that goes, Well, you know, I, loved, I play the game where wherever I am, I pretend to be the thing that puts me to greatest advantage. So in uh, Canada... It's terribly glamorous to be English, right? In America, it's terribly glamorous to be Canadian. And in Jamaica, or hold on, I'm, I'm forgetting. In Jamaica, no, in Jamaica, you want to be Canadian. In Canada, you want to be Jamaican. In America, you want to be Canadian. And in, I forgot, did, did I do all that? <laughs> <laughs> no, nowhere do you want to be English, it turns out. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. In Eng- America, yes. America, they're quite like... <laughs> The English accent, they're obsessed with... They do. Well, they you, if you have an English accent in America, they think that your IQ has 20 extra points. I used to... My first two assistants both had uh, English accents, and I hired them because they had English accents, because I knew that anything they asked for, they would get. And that turned out to be true. The, the minute anyone hears that English, they just people just fold like an accordion. They, <laughs> they will give people whatever they want. So do you, is, is there any part of you, when you come back here, that thinks that part of your... History, part of your DNA came from... Well, I, my, oh, yes. My father, 
who is English, uh, from Kent, uh, was one of the most English English people. He's the parody of the, you know, dogs gardening, long walks in the rain, cries reading Dickens out loud to his children. I mean, it, it, the whole, I mean, you can't. Just like Matt, just like Matt and me. <laughs> cries reading Dickens. Only, <laughs> but the only time he would cry was reading Dickens to his children. No other circumstance would bring him to tears but that. Have I not described... I mean, come on, that is the parody. That is, that I've is never known anyone <laughs> reading Dickens. Okay, so there's still part of... There's a little part of Ferrum. There's a little bit of... There's a little bit of... You can take the boy out of Ferrum, but you can't take Ferrum out of the boy. And the last thing I was going to ask you was... Uh, I think it was The Guardian said that there is... There is a concept which is called Gladwellian, yeah. which kind of means counterintuitive writing underpinned mm. by social science. Is that a good description of your writing and your podcast? I guess. I, I don't like that term, Gladwellian. Um, I don't think I'd, you know, this is not unique to me by any stretch of the imagination. It's been going on forever. Um, it's called journalism. Um, but uh, yes, that's a, not a bad description. I, I try and marry. Um, storytelling with some kind of theory, academic understanding. Yeah. I just think it's the fact that you, uh, in everything that you do, seem to take great delight in questioning your beliefs. You know, I used to always think this, but you know what? Maybe I was wrong. And you never hear that. You, you, well, you so mm -hmm. rarely, everyone has to be certain mm -hmm. and they have to be consistent. You know, uh, at the start of this podcast, I was saying I now like the Tottenham Hotspur manager because he's won one match. Whereas in the last podcast, I said he was the Antichrist. <laughs> so I've accepted. But apart from that kind of thing, but, in, but, you see, but you make a virtue of that. Yeah, I quite enjoy changing my mind. Um, I don't know why. I, kinda, I just think it's more fun. I mean, not fun, but more seriously... I feel like the only way to fully understand something is to have looked at it from every perspective. And so part of what it means to be, I think, a kind of thoughtful person is to force yourself to walk entirely around the issue. Spend at least a little bit of time looking at it from every perspective before you make up your mind. What are you going to be doing next? I'm working on season five of Revisionist History. Excellent. Wow. Excellent. When's that out? In uh, first issue, first uh, episode will be in uh, sometime in June, I hope. Well, if you could hurry up, that would be great. Um, <laughs> I don't know what judgment you've made of Matt and me, because I'm sure you've secretly judged us. Um, but in the meantime, Malcolm Gladwell, Talking to Strangers. Uh, Malcolm, thank you very much indeed. There'll be another bit of Malcolm when we do uh, our Q&A uh, coming in a few days' time. But Malcolm, thank you very much. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.